2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith broadcasting remotely. Parents, how you doing these days? From homeschooling to working at home or still juggling going to your job while your kids are at home, this pandemic life leaves much to be desired. We want to hear from you as we focus where we live on online learning for your K through 12 students. Now, I used to worry too much if my kids watched a lot of TV, but honestly, it's the only way I can do the show live from my house without interruption. And TV time for a small part of the morning makes my children more likely to do their online schoolwork later. How about you? What have you tried to get your kids motivated for homeschooling and while also trying to keep your sanity? We want to hear from you 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live at where we live. KJ on Twitter writes, online learning requires way more discipline on the part of the student and way more paperwork on the part of the teacher. We need to plan better for the next time this happens. We're gonna be talking with people who work in education later on the show. But I wanted to hear from a parent first. So joining us via Zoom is Gwen Samuel. She's founder and president of Connecticut Parents Union. It's an advocacy group that's parent-led that works to obtain educational opportunities for all.
3: Gwen, welcome to the show. Good morning, thank you so for having me.
2: Now you have a child in the the Meriden School District. Uh, Tell us, it's been, I believe more than a month now, all the days are blending together. Tell us about how your school district communicated about how this had to be now homeschooling because of the pandemic. Uh,
3: So for Meriden, and I also, as the founder of the Connecticut Parish, I work with other cities, so I'm gonna talk about Middletown as well. I mean, notifications, even with the uncertainty, Uh, notifications uh, went out immediately, especially after the school closures. So that was the benefit of the district. They were on point with notification to parents, but the challenges were, uh, were parents ready for online learning, not necessarily mentally ready, which is a whole nother conversation, (laughs) having the tools in their house for children to um, engage in online learning like internet, in your home does every child have a computer um is there are they technology savvy you know um when you think about grandparents the same thing so for me my daughters this is her last year of school um so for her jumping on a computer and doing the work wasn't a problem the challenge was she just rushed through it mm-hmm. so and i'm not an educator so i don't know if all the work is right but uh, so those are my challenges of, uh, you know, just making sure that she's taking her time with her homework versus uh, with- just do it. Yeah.
2: Now, Gwen, with your organization, you're hearing from parents and other school districts, from hearing from them, from talking with educators you know, how have Connecticut School District handled this? It is really unprecedented. And as you mentioned, uh, depending on the district, access to computers, access to uh, internet, or even having an adult there to help at home during the day.
3: Well, the stories have been very mixed. And um, you do have some Uh, very unhappy campers as they say well for parents Um, because again you can have intergenerational issues because in our country we have more grandparents raising children so there's clearly that uh, technology barrier Um, um, the speeds are like a super big issue Um, I had one family call me and she's like Gwen I just got a robocall uh, Ms. Gwynn, I just got a robocall that my child wasn't in attendance. This was in Meriden. Uh, they since corrected the um, issue. So she thought, was well, we were supposed to go back to school. But what it was, they were taking attendance by logins. And But the challenge with that is she uh, didn't have internet access. She couldn't gain access to it because they said only certain providers were in her district and it was hard to get through and affordability became an issue and then all of her kids didn't have a computer. Mm -hmm. Um, So once the commissioner of education uh, took the focus off so much focusing on attendance, um, it allowed parents uh, more time to adapt. So some of the issues were speed, that's a big issue. Um, Some children can not only one child at a time, which could cause a problem when you have multiple grade levels in your house who have to log in for their assignment, but there is not enough speed with the internet for all children um, to be online. So that's one of the major issues um, that I'm seeing. And then, of course, actually being able to actual log in, not because of the login credentials, but again, there's this mass draw mm-hmm. on the internet, which also reduces uh, speeds and cause instability in login.
2: You're what hearing I mean. Yeah, you're hearing Gwen Samuel, founder and president of Connecticut's, Connecticut Parents Union. She's joining us on Zoom today on Where We Live as we talk about online learning. Now that Connecticut school kids in K through 12 have been home for more than a month, how's it going in your home? You can join our conversation, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring into the conversation now, Jenny Miles Wiener, associate professor of educational leadership, at UConn Niag School of Education. Uh, she also wrote a New York Times piece titled, I Refuse to Run a Coronavirus Homeschool. Uh, Jenny, welcome to our show.
4: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
2: Uh, you're also a mother. So what has the, the experience been like uh, for your children at home as you're trying uh, to keep them occupied and, and they're not in school?
4: Yes, so um, I am a mother of, a, well, soon to be nine-year-old twin boys. Um, one of whom has a disability and is uh, typically in a substantially separate classroom. So um, you you might imagine that their lives look quite different than they did when they had multiple caring adults at a school with a highly structured day. Um, We have been attempting to do what we can um, when it feels right. Uh, We have wonderful teachers and um, they've been sending home things more, I would say, oriented towards caring for us and ensuring that we have what we need, but, not are, but are not overburdened by it. And we pick and choose to the extent that's possible. Um, and that gives us the ability to function and feel resilient um, during the day. And a lot of our day really is also about um, with two full-time working parents, trying to make sure the kids are occupied and not killing each other so that we're <laughs> able to do the things that we need to do during those 12 hours that they're awake or more every day.
2: You know, I was thinking that it's, it's easy, uh, you know, when, when we sent our children to school, they were used to that structure and that schedule, and now they're home and also expected to just adapt to uh, this online uh, module of learning uh, while everyone else is trying to get their work done. And that is challenging, uh, as we all know. Um, you can also join our conversation. We want to hear about your experiences, but uh, Jenny, before uh, we take some listener calls, I wanted to focus a little bit on what you wrote for the New York Times and um, some of the points that you wanted uh, to put out there for parents as we're all trying to, to deal with this, this new way of
4: life. Yeah. So some of the things that I think I was really moved to kind of express in that piece was that, you know, first of all, The idea that parents on a dime could replicate, even under the best of conditions, meaning if there was not a global pandemic, what happens within the context of a school day every day feels to me um, like a fool's errand to some extent, right? Because there's so much more than content delivery that happens in any sort of individual day that children are experiencing school. Um, whether that be, you know, the, the arts, the ability to connect with caring adults, the ability to connect with 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 their their friends and other people that they care about. Um, and also, you know, so then you add the fact that we are also meaning parents are expected to then uh, many of us continue our own work. Um, that we're dealing with a global pandemic, we might be fearful for our own health and safety, we may be having to negotiate family members, other care of one's caretaking in other spaces. And you put that all together and just say, well, business as usual just felt to me um, impossible. And um, I also felt that a lot of the burden of that would most likely fall on mothers and working mothers, particularly just because that's where most of the burden of childcare and education in our country does tend to fall. And I just didn't want to necessarily set myself up for a feeling of um, failure every day, and so I thought it was really important to just say, you know what, we we need to think about this differently than just trying to do um, exactly what's happening in schools. We need to really do something that's working for us and attending to our uh, sense of well being, our children's sense of well being, um, and giving us some, ourselves some grace and compassion during this time. Um, that's going to be terribly, terribly difficult for everyone, educators included.
2: Uh, Gwen Samuel, I wonder if you could jump back in. How do you respond to what Jenny is saying and the point about, you know, not just uh, going to school to learn, but all of the other social interactions uh, that children are exposed to that also help them grow?
3: Yeah, so that's um, like many. So I work in the majority in the urban communities Mm -hmm. and um, you got single parents households. Um, that have to work and they're still trying to juggle, juggle home. Um, it's definitely a challenge. I was refreshed by a, um, a Dr. Hayes out of New Jersey who actually stated when the pandemic hit, their school um, did not immediately jump into the academic aspects. They made sure that the social uh, service uh, component of their school was in place because we have many parents that, are, that have special needs children mm-hmm. um, really not getting the supports they need because some of the supports uh, were in the actual school building, mm-hmm. right? If you have schools with community health centers um, that maybe help with mental health services, those services are no longer um, in place because the schools are closed. And then we have self-quarantine so there's a challenge of those support services that were outside of the classroom or outside of the home, um, those children not accessing. And then of course, which, which, which brings on a whole nother set of, of challenges for families, right? Because if part of their PPT um, or their IEP, their individualized educational plans. If it was for some certain specific support services what happens to those children and how are we gonna measure their academic success if they don't have those support services? So there are a lot of moving parts with this and I wanna be clear, even though we're calling it homeschooling, uh, parents are literally looking at that, not as a formal education, but they're saying we're just homeschool, we're just schooling at home. So I make that distinction that just because we're schooling at homes doesn't mean many families are homeschooling experts, you know, in that how we define homeschooling. So I, I want people to know that because we're saying, oh, everyone's homeschooling. Now many parents are just schooling to their <laughs> best of their ability at home, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's a formal homeschool network.
2: That's that's true, Gwen. Uh, join our conversation eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Anne's calling from Easton. Anne, go ahead.
0: Hi good morning <clears throat> oh, excuse me um, uh, yes I just wanted to add to um, this crisis this coronavirus crisis schooling um, i I have older children but uh, as a former counselor um, the intent on public schooling uh, that has changed and moved children who are very young into our schools. Uh, And I think those parents need to understand that. And I'm hoping they're getting it from the school district that, you know, you can't pop a child onto a computer at the age of five or six. It's just not, it's not, um, cognitively and developmentally, uh, real it's not appropriate, and that these parents can um, certainly uh, give their children lots of, of, of cr- arts and crafts and things to do in the home, which is all learning. Children are sponges, and um, parents, uh, I hope, have good supports through their um, school districts where they're explaining that it's don't worry children learn all the time. It's not when you're sitting at a desk. It's not when you're, you know, there's other times for learning. Parents can be reading books with their child and um, that there's other things. I'm kind of concerned for the parents. Um, There's enough that they're concerned about with the pandemic. And I'm hoping that we will see a light soon, like the other states that are opening up and that parents can be breathing a little bit easier, understanding more of this and that they're young, their young children who are under say the age of like 8 to 10 who are really not cognitively mm-hmm. ready to be sitting at a at a computer to do work that they well, can learn lots of other things yep. at home.
2: And, well, Anne, thank you uh, for your call and again uh, if you're a parent we want to hear from you as you're trying to navigate uh, your children uh, getting schooled at home as Gwen uh, Samuel had mentioned uh, getting this work done uh, trying to retain what they uh, may have learned during the school year with all of these other uh, pressures at home and worries uh, again eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. 720 Jenny Miles Wiener who's with us on Zoom, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at UConn Niag School of Education So, some, what are some recommendations for parents or even educators, we're going to be talking to a, a assistant superintendent for uh, Meriden in, in a little bit, but we're hearing now that some school districts, they know this online learning, this schooling at home has become increasingly difficult. Some school districts in our country are starting to consider ending the school year early. What are your thoughts on mm-hmm. this?
4: Yeah, so um, I just also just wanted to respond to the caller in the sense that, you know, I think what's really important is now parents are also positioned both as teacher and as parent. Um, and, you know, there there are spaces in which of course, as parents were always teachers, but the for, kind of formalized teacher. And at the same time, they're also sort of the the stalwart of resilience and support, emotional caregiving for their child during this time too. And so I think we just have to also think about, you know, the pressure under that parents themselves are under to provide for their child in all those roles simultaneously. Um, and again, to sort of think about, you know, how can we as parents have enough sort of resiliency um, and feeling of success to be able to make it through each day, given those tremendous jobs, those, those multiple tremendous jobs that they're doing. Um, in terms of the sort of online learning, I mean, I completely agree. I think it's a very tricky situation because there are parents across the spectrum needing very different things, depending on their sort of access to resources, their ability to stay home or not stay home in, this, in, in the sense of work or not work. Um, so I feel like having sort of um, a A menu of of activities that are available to families without necessarily judgment about which ones they're picking and choosing that can help make their child um, feel like they're accessing learning is probably the best, right? Not necessarily one response that's best for every family, but to try to create resources and supports that can be accessed meaningfully for parents and kids throughout this Mm -hmm. process. Um, because there will be times where even I, who am not a total fan of technology, as you said um, in the opener, need to have my kids be involved with something online because there are things that I need to attend to during the day as well. And I can trust that because it's been vetted by an educator, at least it's it's uh, appropriate in terms of content. Um, there are times when I have time that I can attend to them and I want to, and we can... We can um, embrace the wealthy funds of home knowledge and learning that Gwen was talking about Mm -hmm. um, and be able to do that through arts and crafts, through other kinds of activities, cooking, being outside if possible, so on and so forth. So I think flexibility um, and really understanding that parents are under this tremendous pressure as our educators um, to be able to have multiple choices that all support the holistic view of our child during this very difficult time.
5: You can
2: join our conversation. 888-720-9677. Nick's calling from New Britain. Nick, go ahead.
1: Hi, how are you doing today?
2: Good. Go ahead, Nick.
1: Yeah, um, I just wanted to point out that like a lot of people are talking about computer and internet access as being barriers. Uh, My wife and I are fortunate. We happen to have those things. What we didn't have was a pencil sharpener. And you'd be (laughs) amazed how... (laughs) instrumental something that mundane is when you're trying to have a (laughs) four-year-old doing some of her you know matching and learning to write and learning to draw activities at home um so it's not just the big heavy things it's sometimes those little things that parents don't have access to and like as a teacher i also try to make sure for my students that i think of that but it's it's tough um, and then there's also kids for who this model is working better, where, you know, um, and most, most, most kids maybe not, but there's, you know, some students and my own son at home, he gets his work done very, very, uh, you know, efficiently, and he is self-motivated, and it's, he's done more reading in the past two months He's constantly reading, but the amount that he's done in the past two months is just staggering. So there are some students for which, like, this model might work better. And I wonder what we're going to do when we go back to normal to maybe incorporate some more flexibility, like your guest was just talking about, Mm -hmm. some more flexibility for those students who do better with uh, a less structured, traditional classroom environment.
2: Excellent point, Nick. Uh, Gwen Samuel, uh, how do you respond?
6: Um, He
3: hit it on the nail because this is where we discussions of equity come into play because those families um, that have school districts that are 21st century state of the art, right, that those children have been exposed to computers ongoing, you know, the digital um, uh, landscape ongoing, those children are navigating more successful in those communities that did not have that ongoing access, right, and the implications of that because you're you're not only trying to log online to hear from your teacher, you're really trying to log online you're trying to learn how to navigate the computer if that is your if if that's not part of your everyday uh, life, maybe the cell phone may be, but not necessarily the computer, so we're also noticing. Uh, gaps in resources uh, and access, which is also uh, playing uh, a barrier, especially when we, uh, as Jenny was saying, talk about that flexibility. There are parents who have uh, made uh, pleas, if you will, to the district or talk to the teacher saying, while we understand educators, days are full and you have your own children at home, um, I can't necessarily log in at this time. Because I am working or I work third shift and then I'm tired during the day and my kids are struggling to get online mm-hmm. or, or maintain it. So flexibility and just paying attention to uh, the lack of resources in certain communities uh, has to continue to be a priority if we're going to meet those most vulnerable needs. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I want to thank Gwen Samuel for joining us today, founder and and president of Connecticut Parents Union. Uh, Gwen, thank you. We appreciate your time today.
3: Thank you for having me. Have a safe day, everyone.
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Jenny Miles-Wiener will continue to stay with us, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at UConn-Neag School of Education. And coming up after the break, we want to continue to hear from you about you and your child's online learning experience. 888-720-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. After the break, how should Connecticut school districts be helping students learn in these strange times? What strategies can help them prepare for next school year. That's coming up. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall What barriers are your kids running into when it comes to their Zoom or Google classroom? We know even... Connecticut closed schools at the start of this pandemic. There were still plenty of school kids in the state who didn't even have doctors at home. If you're a parent, we want to hear from you today. What guidance did you receive from your school district? How has it changed over the last month? 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today on Zoom is Jenny Miles Wiener, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at UConn's NEAG School of Education. And joining us now is Beth Tarasawa, Executive Vice President of Research at NWEA. It's a nonprofit that focuses on pre-K through 12 assessments. Uh, Beth, welcome to our show. Thank you. Uh, you, we had you, we have you on because your group uh, recently studied how these school closures uh, due to the pandemic uh, could, could result in substantially lower achievement levels for students. So, so tell us how you've been able to look at that and why your projections are looking this way.
7: Sure. Uh, We focused uh, our research leveraging previous uh, summer learning loss research, also known as the summer slide. And we used a national sample of over 5 million students in grades 3 through 8 who took MAP growth assessments in 2017 to 2018 to estimate the potential impacts of COVID-19 related school closures. And so the research compared the academic achievement trajectories both in math and in reading during a typical year where there was no disruption to learning uh, and a covid slide scenario in which students showed patterns of learning loss typical of summers throughout an extended closure we modeled this for simplicity's sake as beginning in march 15th and we essentially walked the slopes back of summer learning loss to to mid-march and our preliminary estimates suggest that impacts may be larger in math than in reading and that students may return in fall with less than 20, or sorry, less than 50% of the typical learning gains and in some grades a, a full year behind. Uh, reading was a little more optimistic where we would see students potentially returning with about 70% of the learning gains relative to a typical year.
2: Mm. Uh, you mentioned summer learning loss. So tell us exactly what that means.
7: Sure. And and educators and and parents have seen this uh, anecdotally, as well as in uh, numerous data sets that we see students learning throughout the school year. Uh, And then um, come the end of the school year, we see students have slight declines. Uh, This isn't universal across all achievement levels, but typically we see students showing some declines uh, when they return in the the fall, known as summer slowdown or summer melt Mm -hmm. or summer slide.
2: And so as you mentioned, the preliminary uh, COVID slide estimates uh, in reading, uh, 70% of them will come back in the fall at the level, but 50% with math that that will be coming back, and that's actually less than what, more than what you would see during the summer?
7: Yeah, so it's not only the summer mm-hmm. loss that we would see, we'd also yeah. have potentially the lack of instruction over, over the spring, mm-hmm. uh, last three months of the spring for an extended closure. So it's the trajectory of both the, the loss as well as the lack of instruction that makes those particularly mm-hmm. more devastating. And we've seen that pattern in, in other types of data, so NAEP and Eccles k and, and we see the loss tends, tends to be a little more dramatic in those younger grades where the foundational skills are, are really needed.
2: So this is problematic. Uh, How should educators be thinking about this? Uh, Because again, uh, we're in this time where uh, they're really just trying to get through day to day, week to week, but thinking about uh, academic regression for the next year can be daunting.
7: Yeah, that's an understatement, I think. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a lot of um, these are these are projections and, and they are averages and there's you know so much trauma associated with the current economic conditions and joblessness, food insecurities, socioeconomic realities. So these academic projections um you know could could really impact our most underserved communities. To echo Gwen's point, uh, with in terms of equity, um, and you know, I think you know we're really struggling here to think about the the restart plans, and and they're not meant to be dire or or uh, kind of doomsday scenarios, if you will, um, but to really think about what this recovery will look like. And if we look at other examples of, of Katrina or inclement weather or chronic absenteeism. You know, this this could take multiple years. And so really thinking about how we lock arms and think creatively about out-of-school time um, and really providing resources where they're most needed. um, You know, there's almost a moral imperative here that that we don't want a generation of COVID kids uh, that we're going to need to think about the long-term recovery efforts.
2: What do we know about if this online learning that schools have had to shift to uh, immediately, will it have any impact when it comes to this this, uh, preliminary COVID slide?
7: Yeah, you know, it's been amazing to see some of the heroic efforts of, of districts, of individual teachers. Um, we've seen districts and Internet providers and other entities really work together to offer, you know, free or discounted Internet access, provide technology devices to, to help really bridge that digital divide. But, um, you know, even if all families have access, the impact of technology could be quite uneven. and And we know home environments are even more unequal than technology. Uh, not to mention covid's brought additional challenges in meeting, you know, students increasingly complex social and emotional needs associated with the the crisis. So all signs point to to educators really seeing great variation across their students. And so, you know, one of the implications that we predict or that we keep hearing from our districts is come fall one of the bigger challenges teachers will will have is instructing students with, you know, vastly different learning needs, which is always difficult but likely exacerbated this fall.
2: You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Jenny's calling uh, from Bristol, but she's actually at work. Jenny, welcome to the show. What's your quick question or comment?
8: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have three kids, 12, 10, and 7. My husband is a teacher, and luckily he's home with our kids. So most days I feel lucky to go to work. (laughs) Some days not. Some days I wish I could be home helping him. Um, I guess the hardest part has been maybe dealing with the emotional um, needs. My 7-year-old often is frustrated, um, taking long periods of time to finish her work, even with help. Um, my 10-year-old has ADHD, and the lack of structure has been really difficult for him. So I just uh, I wonder how this will take its toll long term. And my 10 year old is also transitioning to middle school next year, which I'm sort of fearful of how that transition will go, considering he's been out of school this long. Um, So I guess I'm hopeful that they do go back for the end of the year for some period of time, but I'm not, um, not really confident that's going to happen. And
2: you're worried about the long term, as you mentioned.
8: Yes, especially for my 10-year-old. He has had such a great experience this year. He has a new teacher who is new to our school and our district. She has been phenomenal with him, Um, and I'm just so sad that he's missing this time with her. Um, She's really helped him grow so much during this year, Um, and she's still helping remotely. However, it's, it's just not the same.
2: Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Jenny, uh, for calling in. I wanted to ask our, our guest, Jenny Miles wiener to respond. Uh, Associate professor of educational leadership at UConn Niag School of Education. You uh, know, we started this segment talking with Beth, uh, looking at the, the preliminary estimates of, of what this will mean for uh, achievement uh, in our schools. But you know, it's hard to also think about this when you think about the long term uh, emotional and uh, academic impacts on on children.
4: Yeah. So um, I kinda, I would love to respond and, and sort of try to put those two ideas together in the sense that I don't wanna minimize in any way the inequities and, mm-hmm. and the sort of idea that ch- children are missing something um, academically from being, being at school. But I also think it's really important to point out that the COVID pandemic did not create the inequities in Connecticut that previously existed that had created gaps already in terms of opportunities and sort of uh, equitable funding and access to resources. And one of the problems or things that I'm concerned about, and this relates to sort of addressing kids' well-being and their other kinds of needs, is that um, if we frame this primarily as an academic problem um, or solely or primarily as an academic problem, then the solutions that we will probably uh, try to Um, implement will also be fundamentally about academics. And many of the Mm -hmm. academic solutions that we've tried in states like Connecticut and elsewhere in the United States have really been around um, accountability, uh, standardized testing, um, these kinds of frameworks that really haven't shown to make a huge dent in the opportunity gaps that already existed. So my fear is that when we plan for re-entry, the attention gets paid on doubling down on Mm -hmm. sort of approaches that haven't really improved these structural inequalities to begin with, um, and the kind of needs that, you know, Jenny was talking about for her kids, right? Mm -hmm. So how are we going to create a school or think about school in new and innovative ways that ensures that A, all children have the resources that they need. That may mean different kinds of policies about school funding and educator pay and all sorts of things. But also, how are we going to welcome them back in a way that makes them feel safe, um, addresses the trauma, the kind of psychological needs that have happened during this time. For example, could they possibly have the same teacher that they had last year and and facilitate looping? So when they're being welcomed, they're being welcomed by someone they love and know, uh, rather than also creating more instability as they return to the school setting. So I just want to make sure that we're thinking about these things together as opposed to just about some, you know, slide or academics or just about the socio the socio-emotional well-being of kids and understanding that in a context that already wasn't working so great for many of our kids in the state. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, Beth Tarasawa, let's talk more about that, you know, providing social-emotional learning space uh, when uh, children uh, return to school, whenever that is. When we look back at at other uh, traumatic events that have happened in recent years, uh, thinking Katrina being one of them and uh, children being displaced, um, you know, losing family members, but this lack of of having uh, consistency in children's lives. Were there any lessons that those educators learned when the children there did go back to school?
7: That's a great question. I, I couldn't agree with Jenny's comments more. Uh, you know, I think when we're talking about these predictions of the long game and academics, they're intimately tied with the complexity of social-emotional needs. And secondly, these are likely exacerbating long-standing uh, inequalities that um, existed well before COVID. And I think you could say the same parallels with Katrina and many of the parishes in New Orleans. Um, Doug Harris and the, his colleagues at Tulane you know, studied this for many years following kids in Houston. And I lived in Atlanta at the time. We had quite a bit of the kids trans, transfer over there as well. And um, we also knew, you know know how much that that took for social-emotional and, and traumatic um trauma-informed practices to really support those kids. Uh, And it took, you know, several years to get those kids back to the academic levels they were prior to Katrina, which were not great to begin with. And so I think to this point of, you know, how do we think creatively, flexible, looping, um, it is a chance for us to, to be more creative than we have before. I'd also say, you know, in many ways, one of the silver linings here is that we're connecting to families. So it's been really difficult for school systems to reach many of our families and for some of our families to reach back to, to schools when they have the ability to do so. Um, we've done that in better ways, I think, in the last few months than we have historically and so how can we take those lessons and continue them um, when we're back in brick and mortar
2: i wanted to fit one more call in Uh, andrea is calling from beacon falls andrea go ahead yes good
5: morning Um, i'm a grandparent and my husband and i decided to reach out to our children and offer some help with homeschooling so i wanted to just speak about you know it might be a good thing for parents to think about, do they have any resources, an aunt, a cousin, who might be able to help. For instance, our son has three boys, but it was very difficult for them to get the three boys all together um, and do some educating. So we each kind of took one of those boys and are helping, and also augmenting with things like playing chess via Facebook, and I helped my granddaughter practice her clarinet via Facebook. So I would just um, recommend that if parents are struggling, they might want to see if there are any other resources that they can turn to to kind of assist them and take off some of the pressure.
2: Thank you, Andrea, for your call. Uh, Jenny, I'll go to you.
4: Yeah. Well, can I adopt you, Andrea? (laughs) Uh, This sounds absolutely wonderful. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things I've been doing, this is a sort of side note, is I've been doing food delivery from the food pantry to some of the families. And, you know, I text them. I don't do human contact. But many of them have said, you know, I want to also help. How can I help? And I, I just love this idea of thinking, again, about school and learning being outside necessarily the parameters of what is just being sent home. So um, I think that's absolutely fantastic, and I love the idea of this sort of sense of wealth of knowledge from across. And and maybe maybe it's time for us to set up some kind of, uh, you know, grandma grandma helps, um, where parents can connect with people. And and I know my sons have written letters to folks in nursing homes who are unable to get um, get visitors. And just think about the learning with that, and sort of the learning of. Um, kindness and also compassion and a sense of connection for those people on the other side, but they too need, you know, kindness and support during this difficult time. So I absolutely love it.
2: Well, Jenny miles Weiner, we want to thank you for giving us some food for thought as we continue to talk about uh, online learning and how schools and parents will be transitioning uh, to whatever schedule um, comes before us in the next few uh, months. But we appreciate your time, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at uconn Niag School of Education. She also authored this piece for The New York Times, I Refuse to Run a Coronavirus Homeschool. We'll be sure to tweet it out at where we live. Jenny, thank you for joining us today.
4: Thank you so very much. And, and truly, everyone, you know, just remember, you love your kids, you're doing your best. And, and right now, that's, that's enough. So stay safe, everyone.
2: Thank you, Jenny. And also, Beth Tarasawa, Executive Vice President of Research and NWEA. Uh, Beth, thank you for telling us about your research as well. Thank you. Uh, Continuing the conversation right after the break, we're actually going to hear from uh, one of the assistant superintendents at Meriden. And we'll continue to take some of your comments on social. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, there are so many school districts in Connecticut, but right now we wanted to get perspective from one of, one of them about how it's managing uh, as school is closed, but also trying to navigate online learning, grading. What about school milestones like prom and graduation? Uh, joining us on Zoom is Lewis Bronk, Assistant assistant Superintendent for Personal and Talent Development uh, for uh, Meriden, Connecticut. Uh, Lewis, welcome to the show.
6: Oh, well, uh, thank you. i uh, very happy to be on here and uh, appreciate the conversations being had. Definitely similar to some of the conversations we've had here in district. Um, and I just want to say a quick hello to all of our students, families, and staff that are out there listening right now. I know our board of education members and our central office staff and all of our staff uh, miss interacting with. Uh, everybody on a daily basis, and we're really hoping to sort of uh, get back to some sort of normalcy sometime soon.
2: So how is Meriden, uh, the school district of Meriden, thinking about flexible learning as all of the students are at home and teachers are trying to interact with them, maybe using Zoom or, or Google Hangouts? Uh, it can be challenging, Lewis.
6: Oh, yeah, for sure. And so like I think um, our district's approach was once we found out that we were going to be closing, um, we wanted to sort of get uh, some academic work into the hands of our, of our parents and our students uh, right away. You know, we're a little bit um, uh, just nervous about just having students staying at home with uh, all that's going on and not having uh, anything to keep them engaged and, and, and feeling productive. So our approach was uh, really let's get let's get kids um, the uh, things that they need. Uh, we have uh, uh, just over 8,000 students in our district. Uh, we have been a one-to-one district for some time now. Uh, utilizing technology has been uh, something that our board of education and our superintendent really uh, values in regards to um, complementing uh, the educational uh, environment in the classroom. So I thought we were pretty well equipped um, to sort of get get this type of work started. Uh, but we, there was still a lot of work to be done. I know uh, at our elementary schools, even though students had access to, um, technology and Chromebooks on a one-to-one basis, they weren't bringing that, uh, the, that home that was, uh, staying in the classroom and, and kids were just utilizing that when they're in school. So, um, you know, we really pushed to sort of get, uh, all those Chromebooks out to families, um, while there was a little bit of, um, uh, gaps there in terms of families getting the, the Chromebooks. We um, you know, we're, were providing paper packets to uh, some of our elementary school students could, because mm-hmm. we were hearing from parents that they wanted their kids to continue doing uh, some academic work and continue to stay busy at home. Um, and then once we kind of got that technology out to kids, uh, we were finding uh, just kind of what um, everyone else was sharing. There was um, some difficulty in regards to people getting onto Wi-Fi um, not only with, with, uh, students, but also with some of our staff. Um, and so what we were able to do is, uh, hand out uh, a limited number of, um, of wifi hotspots that kids could utilize at home so that they can get onto, um, you know, Wi-Fi network and, and continue to do work. Um, What about, um,
2: Lewis, uh, when we think about just some standard things in schools uh, as we close out a a year, even things like grading? Is your district uh, thinking about like a pass-fail system, and how do you keep students engaged?
6: Yeah, so um, I know that uh, some districts in our area have gone with uh, some version of a pass-fail. Right now, we've held held true to our our regular uh, grading system. Uh, We found that we, we we find that that's keeping our kids uh, a little bit more engaged and, and working towards uh, completing their work. I know uh, we've heard from some other districts who have gone past fail; um, they have uh, had a little bit of a slide in regards to students staying on on task and completing work. Uh, so right now we're we're holding true to our present um, you know uh, academic. Uh, grading system. Uh, We're monitoring that as we go. Uh, We've been pretty fortunate that um, we're we're getting pretty good engagement right now, but we are working uh, very hard to sort of keep connected with kids. We've got um, multiple staff members. Our our teachers are doing uh, a really wonderful job of reaching out to to students when they're not uh, preparing lessons or on a hangout. Um, but if they have, have they seen the student hasn't been completing work, just trying to figure out what's going on with them. And we've got a lot of different support staff and principals and, and assistant principals uh, reaching out to families and students as well just to make sure that they're okay, uh, see what they need, but um, to, you know, connect with them uh, when they're not engaging in the work.
2: This is a you know interesting time, of course, but when I'm thinking about if you're a junior or senior in high school, uh, to not be in school or to be thinking about uh, where you're going to apply for college or what are you going to do in the fall, I mean, how are you specifically reaching uh, to those uh, students who are close to graduating and are worried about the future?
6: Yeah, so we've tried to all the things that we do um, while we're in school, we've tried to keep those activities going on uh, virtually in some way, and so. Um, you know, you, you touched upon that, that college acceptance process and that college transition or just post-secondary planning. I mean, that that is a, those activities are very busy at this time of year. Um, students are sort of reviewing their financial aid uh, packages. They're making decisions on where they want to go to school. Um, now they have to sort of consider that extra dynamic of, um, you know, if I start somewhere and, and they're not going to have held classes um, regularly in session, but, um, go virtually, you know, is it worth, me to, worth it for me to kind of start, um, you know, at that school or should I stay closer to home? Um, so our school counseling department has actually come up with like a, a webinar series uh, for our students and families on the different topics that are pertinent right now for college selection. Um, they've uh, partnered with uh, folks from Central Connecticut State, uh, St. Joe's and Central, um, to sort of uh, provide webinars with information to parents um, and we've got about uh, seven or eight webinars uh, upcoming um, to really hit some of the topics that are pertinent right now and that'll be pertinent in the months mm-hmm. to come um, I know you know we've talked a lot about you know that connection to school um, and in students really kind of missing out you know they're doing the work but they're missing out on those connections with their teachers with their peers with their friends. Um, And so we've tried to uh, provide as many platforms for that type of thing as well. Um, One thing that we've done recently that uh, was really generated by um, student voice and and students kind of um, coming up with idea and working with class sponsors and other staff was, um, you know, students are making their college selections right now. And usually for them, that's like a really big moment. They're able to share that with their teachers and other staff. They're able to share it with their friends. Um, you guys right put now, a
2: slideshow together, right, for, for, for the students that have been accepted uh, to certain colleges and universities?
6: Yeah, so s- students were submitting their pictures with what their plans were. We we're creating collages uh, of the students, uh, tweeting those out, and letting students put those up on Instagram. Um, and just sharing those um, at board meetings as well to be able to highlight yeah. our students and, and just honor them that way.
2: And we're almost out of time, Lewis, but in terms of like rite of passage events, like prom or senior day, how are you going to manage those things?
6: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the big one right now is graduation. Um, you know, what are we going to do to, to honor uh, that rite of passage and, and really make it a, a special event for our students? Um, I know our, our board uh, really wants to make that um, as big an event and as special as as it can as they can that's always been a, a big thing for our board members um and so we're looking at a multiple different options right now um one we'd love to come back and do a traditional graduation um we don't know what's going to happen with school closure after may 20th but we're anticipating we probably won't be back um so we've been looking at different options you know uh some with uh you know students alone coming and being able to walk for graduation taking picture and video and then being able to stream that out to to, you know, the different people who would come and watch um, doing something virtually if that's not possible. You know, a lot of that's going to be a a communication with our Health Department, the State Department of Education, uh, and really getting information from our students and families in regards to what they want to see and then sharing that with our Board of Education so they can figure out what works best for our community.
2: Uh, Before we we go, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, just uh, academic achievement. How do you get kids to even to do online learning? What's going to happen in the fall? But there's also uh, school districts thinking about how to make a school safe for not just the kids, but teachers, school staff. What if social distancing has to continue? These are all big uh, questions that are still out there. Are these things that the school district of Meriden um, is also talking about at this time?
6: Oh, of course. I mean, we're looking at different models out there, whether it's schools that are in session right now or, or information we're getting from the health department. Um, you know, I think right now, it's just really too early to sort of make any type of determination in regards to how we could proceed when we come back. Um, you know, it, we're, we're kind of trying to see what what's going on in some of the Southern states and Western states that have opened up a little bit more what the impact of that that might be on this uh, pandemic. Um, but we're, we're just taking a look at what, what, are the class size parameters going to be? Are we going to have to kind of stagger um, students coming into school like every other day on an A B rotation? Is there going to be a, a max limit of, of students in a classroom? Um, and if students aren't in one day, you know, will we provide some, some, some sort of virtual instruction on their off days? Um, so those are definitely conversations we're having right now and, and getting prepared for. Um, yeah.
2: Well, we hope to have you back so we can talk more about um, some of uh, those big questions uh, that school districts, not only in Meriden, but across the state and country are dealing with. Lewis Bronk, Assistant Superintendent for Personal and Talent Development uh, for the School District in Meriden, Connecticut. Lewis, thank you.
6: Thank you, everyone.
2: Today's show produced by Tess Terrible, Carmen Baskoff on the phones. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy nall Thanks for listening.